I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Emmy. She struggled with her mental health, was in the foster care system, and experienced homelessness. Let's talk about it. Um, yeah, guys, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, we're hanging out with Emmy and, uh, Emmy, I I mean, I'm going to throw it to you to introduce yourself, but you're, you're, you're many things. You wear many hats. You're a writer, you're a speaker, you're an advocate for young folks. Um, and, uh, you're the author of a, a book that recently came out called Acceptance, which is a memoir, uh, of your journey through the foster care and, and, uh, system and, and through experiencing homelessness. Um, and, uh, we're, we're really excited to sit down and chat with you about your, your very wild story of, of, uh, you know, young woman growing up a coming of age tale that is, um, full of like, you know, full of, uh, uh, challenges it sounds like. Um, but before we get into it, I'll throw it to you, uh, please give yourself a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. And Jeremy, I don't know how I'm going to follow that. Um, <laughs> I just read I, all that through ChatGPT, so I hope that was correct. <laughs> well, darn, but that's what I that's what I did too. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, this is what the world of the world of AI looks like. Wait, Everybody wait, just wait. says the same thing. Wait, did you do that for your entire memoir too? <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> um, unfortunately, it was a little early, but the sequel is definitely going to be AI written. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so my name is Emmy, Emmy Niedfeld, and I am from Minnesota down in the United States. And I am an author and a journalist, um, writing a lot about mental health and the um, teen mental health system. And um, yeah, I'm so happy to be here with you, with you all today. Yeah, we're excited I, to have you here. Yeah, totally. I, I think like I think one good place for us to kind of start here, just to give us and our listeners a bit of context into um, who you are and, and maybe even like context into what acceptance is all about. I was wondering if you could give us like a little sort of, um, a little sort of elevator pitch of, uh, of your upbringing. Um, because it's, it is, uh, it's really, it's really fascinating. I, I mean, I'm sitting here with like notes in front of me that, um, that actually wasn't written by ChatGPT, but, um, you know, one of the first things that, that comes up, um, in this, in the notes that I have here was that, you were raised by a, uh, a mother who was very charismatic, but also uh, a hoarder. Um, and there was like some, a little bit of like, a little bit of wrongdoing on, on your mother's part by assuming that antipsychotics were like a good way to treat you, who I'm guessing was not going through any kind of psychotic break. What, what, was, the, what was your upbringing? G- give us a little bit of, of that background. So I grew up conservative Christian in Minnesota, like very evangelical. Um, And then when I was about nine years old, my parents separated and they had like so many people, this bitter custody battle, which Mm. ended up with my mom getting custody. And as you mentioned, she was a compulsive shopper and she struggled with hoarding. Um, And I think she really had my best interest in mind when she brought me to the therapist and was like, I think she has ADD. Like my daughter's disorganized. She's chronically late. And I was also like 11 years old. Um, And so I was given medication. I went through all this therapy, like, and honestly, like I did become depressed. I developed an eating disorder. Like Mm. I was really, really struggling because we lived in a house where there were mice everywhere, um, just screaming on glue traps. And we didn't have any like solid surfaces to like cook or really eat besides our beds and the toilet, Mm. you know? And, um, yeah. And so that was really the the beginning where it all started. Did you have any siblings or were you an only child? Well, I ha- I have an older half brother, um, but he was, he was 12 years older than me. And when I was growing up, my mom, she always called me. She's like, 
you are the prototype of an only child. So I like grew up raised with this idea that I was an only child, even though I had a brother, Mm. Um, Mm. which is something that comes up in the book because people would read it and be like, like, where's your brother? Like, (laughs) you know, what are some of the, uh, what I feel like hoarding is a, is a, a term that sort of the way that people have come to use terms like OCD or something like that, where they, it, 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 becomes colloquially used yeah, as yeah. as sort of like a flippant term to describe like oh, I've got a lot of stuff um and and <laughs> I know that it's not it's much much different from that like what what are some of the things about ho- like living in a house <laughs> with somebody yeah. who is hoarding that um that you know, the average person is not going to you know think about uh, what that experience yeah. might be like like how is hoarding different from Brian the back of Brian's car no. Yeah, which is filled with garbage. <laughs> not not anymore, guys. Before right. before I started right. going to therapy, it was right, like right, that. Right, right, right. Now it's right. a little right. cleaner. cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I would say hoarding is definitely a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's Brian, the back of Brian's car. On he's the on it. Side. So he's on the spectrum. Like, got okay. it, got it, got it. Like, got it. like, like a few years Copy. ago. Copy. Yeah. I'm not yeah. trying right. to diagnose you, right? But therapy works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, on, and then on the other side, you know, you have people where they acquire so much stuff that it literally kills them. Mm. And, Actually, when I was growing up, it was the early 2000s. And this word hoarding, it didn't really exist in the common vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Like that television show Hoarders, it had yes. not come out yet. Right. Right. And so when I went to the when I was at the therapist's office and I was trying to explain what was happening at home, people were like, Yeah, she, you know, your mom has a lot of stuff, like no big deal. And I think that's often what people still think about when they think about hoarding. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly like everyone hoards differently than others. Um, But like in my house, it was the type of thing where we couldn't get to the kitchen sink because there were like piles of stuff in front of it. And Mm. like food would start to rot in part because it would just get lost. Mm. You know, um, like at one point a family member I'm going to reveal that I'm American here with this anecdote, but at one point a family member like told me like, we should get your mom a gun. Like she's a single woman who lives on her own. She needs a firearm. And I was like, she's going to lose it. Like right. it's just <laughs> going to fall into a pile. And then she's going to accidentally like shoot herself. Right. Yeah. Whoa. Um, And so I think, I think people, it can be really hard to like kind of visualize this, this house where there's only like a thin snaking pile. There's like mice running between it. There's like excrement everywhere mm. and just how damaging that can be on somebody's health. When, yeah. For, when, for the person and for anybody who's living in the, yeah. I mean, especially a child who's, who's trying to make sense of the world and living in this, in this space. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's what I was curious about asking. Like when your mom took you to the doctor about your mental health at a young age, was that a result of the environment that you were in? Like yeah. what, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Personally, I think part of it was projecting, you know, that Mm. clearly something was wrong, but like many other conditions, a big part of hoarding can often be not realizing that it's a problem or not being able to see like, okay, I have, I have an issue, you know? And even to this day, if you ask my mom, she'd say, I have a lot of stuff, but it's not dirty. You know, it doesn't hurt me. Um, And you know, and also like when families get divorced, I think we often have this idea like, okay, the best thing to do for children is to take them to therapy without. Mm. And I think therapy can be absolutely wonderful. It can be helpful and life-changing and also it can be medicalizing, right? Mm. And it can take normal problems and then apply antipsychotics. I'm really curious about that because um, I went through a really uh, challenging divorce when my parents, uh, separated when, when I was 15 years old. And like up until that point in my life, I like had this, like, not like perfect childhood upbringing, but like a really great, like middle-class upbringing. My parents didn't spoil me, but like we were able to like be involved in sports and do things like that. And both my parents were there. And so it was, it was like really great until all of a sudden, this divorce happened. And for me, it like flipped my world upside down. I, I could have never imagined that my parents were going to separate. And on top of that, it was a really nasty divorce that went on for like almost 10 years. 
and and um, I remember my parents asked me, like in the very beginning of it, if I would be interested in going to therapy and talking to someone about it. They, I don't think they said therapy. I think they were like, "Would you be interested in talking to someone about it?" And I was like, "No, I'm I'm okay." I'm good. And I think for a long part of my life, I told myself that mm-hmm. it was totally fine. And I, I didn't really understand the ways that it impacted me and my relationships. And I, like I mentioned earlier, I started going to therapy, um, which, which was a couple of years ago and going into therapy, especially after having the benefit of having a lot of conversations through this podcast about mental health, I felt like I was way more adequately prepared to sort of go into the recesses of my mind and those past traumas and explore them. But I also think at the same time that if I tried to do that when I was 15, mm-hmm. I could have, I could easily see how that would, would have fucked me up a lot more. And I'm curious, like what you think about, yeah. you know, children going to therapy and the preparation that it takes to be able to do that at that age or what that should be like. And, like in contrast to an adult experiencing therapy. Well, I'm really sorry you went through that. I think divorce is not something we, like the the painful parts are not something we talk about enough. Mm -hmm. Especially because of how common it is. Like it's it's sort of just like, because, you know, like the stat is or whatever, 50% of marriages end in divorce now. So people are like, well, like your parents are divorced. I mean, that happens or whatever. And Yeah. yeah, it can be really tough. Yeah. And, I think there's a fundamental difference too when when you have someone voluntarily choosing to go to seek help <laughs> versus when it's foisted on people. Mm. And, you know, lots of kids can decide like, hey, I do want to talk to somebody. And there's also a power imbalance that means that like mm. when I was in therapy, I did not want to be there. I did not think it was going to be helpful. And people were constantly asking me like, you know, you have this trauma that's unresolved. Like you need to go into it. You need to explore it. And I just wasn't ready. And I Mm. knew I wasn't ready. And I knew like, this isn't a good idea. And so like for me, and I think for a lot of teens, it's like, sometimes you just have to stabilize and you have to Mm. get to a place in your life where you're like, okay, I'm out of that bad situation. And like, I feel safe enough to look back. It's an interesting, it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting topic that I don't know if we've ever really touched on is kind of talking about like how, how, because we are, because we often and exclusively talk about therapy in this, like in in the sense of how helpful it can be. We don't really ever really look at the, the sort of negative impact that it could have if it's not necessary. The same way that like you shouldn't take antibiotics if you don't have a, if you don't have something that the antibiotics is fighting because it can, it can mess up your ability for antibiotics to be useful in the future because yeah. it because you can't because it won't be able to fight or you could develop resistance and that sort of thing. So like it's just an interesting angle that I've never really thought about. Yeah, just to inter, inter, interject on that, like my my opinion is that like when you said um, therapy when it's not necessary, I feel like therapy or when you're not ready. R- right. Yeah, I, I think that's a better way to to put it because I think therapy can always be amazing if it's presented and packaged in the right way, if you're not going there to like, you know, be treated because you're like, quote unquote, treated because you're sick. And if it's there to like help you proactively manage your mental health and stay on top of things, then it, I think, I think everybody should go to yeah. therapy when they're ready. <laughs> um, I, I want to, I want to uh, sort of preface this next question and probably, and like a lot, and maybe a lot of questions with just the fact that whenever we're talking to somebody who's written a book that has like, all the all the juicy details. We want to be, you know, aware that we're that we're not we're not drawing out the story that makes the book unnecessary to read. So I'm going to preface it with that. Um, what happens uh, with you ending up in the foster care system mm. in Minnesota? So when I was when I was 13, I went to inpatient an inpatient psych ward, um, and I had become really really depressed. I had taken a lot of different drugs by that point and like each different medication made me feel like more hopeless that something was actually going to help me. Um so I went to the hospital and it was actually amazing. I loved it there. It was so clean and they had hot water, they had hot food. It was amazing. And I basically went back like multiple times that year and eventually I 
um, I got a county social worker. One doctor was like, I think that your mom is causing problems and referred my case to Hennepin County, which was the county where I lived. And, um, and then I was hospitalized yet again. And then I was um, sent to this residential treatment facility. And for a while, they, you know, they wanted me to go to foster care before the treatment center, but there were, you know, it wasn't going to work out. I was like not a candidate. And there's a huge shortage of homes, especially for teenagers Mm -hmm. and especially for teenagers with like serious needs. And so instead I went to this like locked treatment facility, which is kind of similar to these troubled teen facilities that are in the news. Um, Except it was, it wasn't for profit, but a lot of the practices were the same where it was like super punitive. Mm. Um, And then after that, I went into foster care um, for, I was there for a a year. um, And it was, my mom voluntarily agreed to let me go. Um, But it was pretty clear that to me that if she hadn't agreed that then they would have like reported, done a report to like the authorities and it would have been Mm. like involuntary. Right. How old were you then? I was 14. Right. Man. That's it. You, you, did you like immediately get set up with a, with a foster care family once, once that, like, once that happened? Well, so that's a great question. And my hunch is that before I went to the treatment center that my social worker was looking, like she Mm. told my doctor, she told everybody like, okay, we're going to try foster care. And that at that time she just couldn't find anything. And that like, I was in this treatment facility for nine months and so basically by the end of nine months, there was, there was a family and I don't know if, and you know, I was told like, there's no other families, like this is it. Like, if you don't want to go live with them, you're going to stay locked up for your sophomore year, your 10th grade of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there just aren't that many out there. At, at that time in your life, when you're going to school, like, do you go to school in uh, person and then come back to the the hospital or how does that That's work? a great question. That's a great question. So basically they had um, two classrooms where they had teachers from the special education department of the local school district. So there was one teacher who was like math science. The other teacher was like English history. And it was a lot of like multiplication worksheets, read alouds, that kind of stuff. Right. Is it like, do you feel like it's a relatively like a good learning environment like there's one teacher and there's a few students or is it just like hey this is there's so much bad shit going on right now that this is just like learning on top of this is just so hard i i would have loved to go to school because for me like school is the escape studying is like my favorite thing to do um but it was really a joke and i think it was hard for me because i was like i want to be achieving but I think it was even worse for a lot of the other patients who were there because they did need remedial help. Yeah. And mm. going to like inpatient therapy or having these family problems, like it makes it hard to learn. And so I felt we should have had even more like academic attention than we did. Mm. <laughs> I'm really curious about like going into a foster home at that, that age. It, like I've, I've already mentioned that when I was 15, I went through this pretty challenging divorce. And I remember at times like, fighting with my parents and them saying like, here's the fucking phone. Like call, like you want child services to come pick you up, call them, like call them and, and, and see what happens and where you end up. And like, I remember having this, like this, like thinking this debate in my head of like (laughs) the situation at home is really bad, but what would foster care be like? And I remember this like sort of idea that like, there's this like fear of what that Mm -hmm. system might be like, were you afraid going into the foster care system or was it like a sort of, yeah. uh, Yeah. How did you feel? Did did you ever watch the show Atlanta? No. There's a, there's a singular episode in season three where Mm -hmm. this uh, young girl is in an argument with her mother, just Mm -hmm. like what you're talking about. And the mother basically says exactly that. Like, I don't give a fuck. Like call, call child services, see what happens. And so she does. And she ends up, uh, getting taken out of her home and put into a foster care family. And she's this young, like, black child. And she gets set up with this, like, sort of, like, hippy-dippy white family that, like, you know, like, drink their own urine kind of, like, vibes. You know, like, real, like really hippy. Very hippy-dippy. And, and, of course, you know, by the end of the episode, she escapes from the, from the family. 
uh, gets back to her mom and her mom's like, welcome home. Like, how, how was, uh, how was your experience? And yeah. it was like, the, and the lesson learned was like, fuck, like I, you know, things aren't great here at home, but they're, yeah. they're most certainly not nearly as fucking bad as they could be with a family that you don't have the like Matilda. to join. Like, yeah, like totally, the plot yeah. to Matilda, right? Yeah. And yeah. so like, it's yeah. so common in media to see like the foster care yeah. system portrayed as like this like scary <clears throat> place. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off there, but, but yeah. it would ju- you just, it, something you said there, Brian, reminded me of that. <sighs> Who knew that this was a trope? Because yeah. <laughs> when I was younger, my mom would say the same things. Like yeah. I would say, you know, we don't have hot water and she'd be like, okay, like you want to go live with some other family where you get mm. molested like mm-hmm. and so i had been really afraid of it and afraid that it was the worst thing that could possibly happen to me um but i had i think as far as experiences go my experience was relatively good um i was placed with one family and they had a relative living with them which is very common so she was like their other foster daughter but mm. she was related and um <clears throat> i lived in the same place for the whole school year um, but it, it absolutely was not easy. And there was a huge culture shock. Mm. Um, because even though my family had been religious, my mom, she loved art. She was super intellectual. And this foster family like thought Emmy is miserable because she studies too much. Like that right. is her number one problem in life. Mm-hmm. And like for you, that was, as you mentioned, that was like your escape, like immersing yourself in learning. Yeah, exactly. So that's they, not a great fit. Yeah. No. <laughs> and and they were they were from what I gathered like they were uh extremely uh religious, correct? Um Yeah, I'd say for Minnesota probably moderate. Okay. But um sure. like like we had a fight over my art history flashcards. I took an art history class while I was living with them and we had to like cut out little pictures of famous statues and put them on cards and they were really upset that the statues were naked. Mm. How does that, mm. I saw that you wrote that and I, and I really just tried to think about what that in, what that, what that situation looks like in terms of like how the back and forth goes, because it's so, it seems it's so outside of my experience that I'm like, whoa, how does that logically come to pass? Like that, that yeah. interaction, like when, like when, when that gets brought up to you that that is offensive or wrong or however it's framed. I'm not exactly sure. What, how how do you respond to that in a way that isn't offensive by saying like, like, like what? Like, really? What do you, like, what do you mean? Like, how do, how does that, how does that conversation play out? (laughs) Yeah. Well, they had a set of like brown leather side-by-side recliners where Mm -hmm. they would like sit when they were home. And so mm-hmm. they would like call me down for like the the big like talking to you and be like, you know, why is why are you bringing porn into our house? Mm. Like this is pornographic. And, you know, and I was like, it's Michelangelo's David. Like it's a famous work of art. You know, I don't understand why he's naked either. Right. And you like, know? is that not at the Vatican? <laughs> yeah. Guys, guys. Ca- that's Catholic. I'm sorry, yeah. but like, sure, in right, Minnesota, right. like Catholic My is bad. not Christian. It is right. very different, and you're burning <laughs> yeah. in hell if you believe in the Virgin Mary. Right. Okay. See, I told. See, Amen. outside of my yeah. experience, I'm Amen. I'm outside of my yeah. I'm outside of my area of expertise. This is a little here. bit of an aside, but uh, I went on a work trip um, to England like seven or eight years ago, and uh, I was staying with this, uh, or I was supposed to be staying with this guy from one of the offices there that was like a sister office to the company I worked for. And um, I ended up not staying with him and ended up getting a hotel room, but I went for dinner with him. And while I was at dinner, he was like, I'd really love for you to come by my place. And I was like, "That's this is feeling a little bit weird. And he's like, no, no, seriously, I want to show you something. And I'm like, this is making it more weird for me now. And he's like, I've got a, I've got a life-size statue of David in my backyard. And I was like, I'm really not <laughs> interested. But then also I was oh, like, dude, I kind of got to see be it running over. So I went and looked in his, in like, he just took, I was like, Hey, my hotel is actually just past your place. So like, we'll, we'll take a cab. We'll go by. I'll look at it. And then I'm going to leave. And so I went and looked and he had, it was like this, like an ink, little English street, like from yeah. uh, like Coronation Street or something. Like you pit, you can, you can totally picture it in your head show. right now. And there's like a little garden with like a little white picket fence and like all the houses, it's row houses. They all look the exact same except this guy's house, which has like a 15 
or 20 foot tall statue of David. Holy shit. Just in the middle of the yard for no reason. So yeah. naughty. And yeah. yeah, that it was so naughty. Was naughty. Offensive, really. Yeah. So, so, so how do yeah. So how do you respond? <laughs> so how do you, thank you for that aside, Brian. How do you, res- how do you respond to this accusation of, of pornography? I mean, I was like, they can feel free to get dressed. Like, I don't, I don't know why the sculptures made them naked either. But like, I was like, it's my homework. Like I have to, you know, I kind of have to do it, you know? And, and we compromised. Like I wasn't going to let their other foster daughter who was like 17 or 18 years old. I wasn't going to let her see them. I was going to keep it from her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. That's the compromise. Mm. Wow. I, was this the, um, was this interaction one of the, it could be, so, you know, just to, again, spoiler alert, um, uh, but even though everybody who's listening to this is going to go out and buy the book, we know that anyway, because that's just like how our podcast rolls. Like everyone just listens and then they go buy the book. So go buy the book, you'll read the story. But um, when I know that like you end up being kicked out of the house uh, with this foster family that you have. And uh, I'm wondering like how much of this interaction about the pornography played a role in you eventually being kicked out? Well, there were a lot of tensions kind of mounting. And so this was definitely like one interaction that kind of led to it. And another thing is my mom was still like pretty involved in my life. And there was a lot of animosity there between her and them Mm. um, where she would really push their limits. Um, And so after this Michelangelo thing, you know, I went and I talked to my mom and, and then we went figure drawing. And we went and we drew naked people. Um, and I don't think my foster parents like ever found out like this is what you're doing on with your mom on like Sunday visits. But pretty soon I was like all up in there, you know, with mm. a sketch pad. Um, so, yeah. And so it was like the the fight that really like broke the camel's back was I was trying to go to a um, a club at school, what they used to call the Gay Straight Alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like all the nerds in school, they all went to this club and we were going to put up posters that said, like told people don't say gay in terms Mm. of like, don't use it as an insult. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yeah, my foster parents didn't want to let me go. Um, and then I told them, well, what if I am gay? You know? And I was like, I don't know what I am. Like I'm bi. But at the time I was like, I didn't even know that was an option on the menu. And, and they were, they were really upset right? Because they felt like I had been withholding important information from them mm-hmm. and like putting their other foster daughter at risk. Man, the hills that people die on, man. Yeah. It's so interesting that, um, like, can you, can you provide a little bit more context in terms of like how, like, what is the expectation of foster care? I mean, you're like a 14 year old kid going into this family. I I'm presuming that you stay until like you're 18 if things are working out. So like, why, is it normal for a, a foster family to like want their foster foster kid to like embody the values of their family? It, like, I don't really, I don't, I'm not sure if I like fully understand how that works or is that just this family <laughs> in particular? I think it's gotta be really hard to have a teenager living in your house who does not respect you or your values. Yeah. Like yeah. to their credit, you know? Um, and and it was also everybody's like first time, right? It was my first time being in a foster home and, you know, they had, they had a kinship placement already, but that's, it's a little different, right? Yeah. When it's somebody that you already know, who's your family member related to you by blood. Um, and so, yeah, I think I could have, you know, the advice that I got, that was probably good advice that I didn't really follow was just like, you know, to try to, to, to just like keep my head down as much as mm. possible. I mean, you have to like respect families who are trying to provide a roof over uh, kids' heads who who you know who really need it. Um, but it's it's a little bit like it doesn't fully the math doesn't add up in my head of like, hey, you have these values that like are probably not in- incredibly common, and you're bringing a kid into your family who's been alive for 14 years already that obviously has you know influences outside of your family values. So I feel like there's got to be some sort of like balance of there, of like trade off of like hey we understand that this kid is going to have their own set of values too 
even though we want them to like respect ours. Yeah, I mean, time. you're painting the picture of the most ideal person <laughs> yeah. on planet Earth yeah. uh, being a foster parent, and the, I think I have a, I have a, a couple of relatives that are that are adopted and have experience in the foster care system from two from two different families, and and from my understanding of having conversations with um, you know their parents, um, um, their adopted parents, is that there's like I mean there's just a very eclectic type of type of person that has a, that has a, there's a collective type of people that, that, that become foster parents. They become foster parents for all types of different reasons. And one reason could be exactly like you said, they want that all they want to do is just provide, you know, a, a, a safe space for somebody who has maybe had, um, a lot of trouble in their upbringing. Some people do it f- because they can get money from the government mm. for it. In in the case in Canada, that's a that's a that's an unfortunate type of person that does that. There can be people that feel like they have the opportunity to impose the values that they see yeah. as yeah. the correct ones onto somebody that maybe they see as misguided or misled or something like that. I mean, you know, there's mm. just people out there that are that are that have all sorts of different reasons for doing for being involved in the foster care system and. Um, and I think that that's might be why that there becomes this trope of the foster care system because there isn't really a standard of care for foster care as Mm -hmm. far as, as far as what I understand, at least in Canada. When you, when you eventually are told by your foster family, like you can't live here anymore, we're not, we're not going to do this. Um, you know, you were saying earlier that there was a shortage of families, Mm-hmm. and uh, you don't really get to choose the family that you get to live with. This family decides to, like, send you out on your own. Um, is there any conversation with, like, uh, officials or, you know, the, the, any, any sort of, like, um, organization that, that is, like, there to try to help you find a new family, or is that, that's it, like, your ticket's punched? In my case, they were very considerate, and they let me wait until the big year of the end of the year tests were happening so that I could stay there, study for finals, take them. Um, and my case was a little unique because I had, I was 15 then, but in my state, there was a program where high school students in their final two years could attend university instead of high school and the state would pay for it. And so I had applied for one for this program and I had gotten accepted um, to attend college really early. And so um, basically my what my social worker and everybody planned out was like, you know, I'm just going to go do that. And because my mom had signed me in to the system voluntarily, she was also able to just like sign me out. And at the time she had a spare apartment. We lived in like a duplex where the top was rented out and then it was vacant. And so I got to go like live there, like basically sleep on the floor for a few weeks and then um, leave. And you left uh, in a Toyota Corolla. Well, <laughs> not not quite. Um, that, that summer I left for a summer camp hmm. and it was a photography camp that my teacher at school had helped. She'd like inspired me to apply. And um, it was just this beautiful like, place filled with all these nerdy teenage artists wearing like dorky uniforms. Um, and it was like the happiest six weeks of my life. Um, and while I was there, they had a boarding school. And so they encouraged me to apply and I did apply and I got in. And so then, um, I started my last two years of high school there. Something that the thing that, um, really stood out to me in, in reading, um, in reading through the um, like a lot of your experiences is, is the, is your, um, is your sort of path into, um, into applying to universities Mm -hmm. and the way that you described um, whether to kind of pour all of your, you know, mental health challenges and experiences into that, into an application or whether somebody might withhold that information and why you might be incentivized to, to do one or the other and sort of the, the whole, um, um, the idea around, uh, like resilience and overcoming, um, which when I was reading through that, I was going, wow, this is super, this is super valuable because it's coming in the era of, 
in the era of talking about mental health in a in a much in a uh, much more commonly that mental health conversations are happening much more frequently and i feel like we're making progress in that direction um there is a lot of emphasis it seems like on overcoming uh and and you sort of highlighted why that can be a problem or why that isn't always the the thing that we want to be hyper focused on and um and I'm really interested in that because it's uh, yeah it's something it's 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 not the angle of the conversation that you ha- that we have very frequently and I think it's really mm-hmm. and it's when I read that I, I was like wow that's really important. Yeah. We live in a culture that is obsessed with resilience. It's like the one positive trait that nobody can argue with. Like you're on a Peloton, they're like be resilient. Everybody's always telling you like overcome your challenges, mm-hmm. and so. When I was applying to college, I was struggling with, okay, how do I talk about this time that I spent in the psych ward, in residential treatment, in foster care? How honest should I be? And this is something that so many high schoolers are experiencing more and more every year as more teens have mental health struggles. And at first, I was completely honest. And I, my college counselor convinced me that like, if you tell them that you were like seriously ill because of the home that you were in, like it will help them understand how bad it was. But then I was rejected. Um, that was in the early application cycle and I got a no and my high school counselor called them and said that they told her that I wasn't overcoming enough and that they needed Mm. to see my success story. And so it became really clear that wow, like yeah, j- at what seventeen, eighteen? Yeah, I was, I was like just barely seventeen years old, and I had written these applications. I had worked on them while staying on friends' sofas, while sleeping in my car, while yeah. staying at a shelter. Like because once I went to boarding school, I didn't really have a place to go during breaks, so I was still like in the middle of it. But the expectation was, you have to show you've triumphed. That's so Ooh. fucked up because isn't one way that you could triumph by them accepting you into college? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like that's like a piece this of the could, hey, yeah, like yeah. I'm asking you, like, this is all the struggles I've been through. Here's how much I've applied myself. That's, that's the story like, of Harry Potter. Like, like that's how he started to you know become resilient. It was when he got accepted to Hogwarts. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, we're gonna have to need to rewrite that for right now. First he has to become like a champion wizard and yeah, then yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Hogwarts, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, well, after all the publicity that uh that the Harry Potter series gave Hogwarts. Now they're a little bit more. It, you need to be a champion wizard let's be, before you can get accepted. Let's now. be fair. Harry Harry was a legacy a legacy acceptance. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's because of his family name. He didn't really do the work. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. After that first experience, did you come back to it with with this like you know this drive to write those applications again but but sort of closet yourself as someone who yeah. struggled i mean i was i was pissed like when mm. when they said like you know that i wasn't an overcomer and that they couldn't see my success story i was like i'll show you success you know and and i, I think for any teenager it's really hard to navigate who am I on the inside versus how do I present myself to other people? Mm -hmm. That's like, I mean, that's a fundamental struggle of being human. And that's also like a marker of the adolescent, like psychosocial development. Um, But, you know, for me getting into college and a college that could give me full scholarship, because it was like, even back then it was $50,000 a year. If I, at a private university and like $20,000 a year at a, my local public university. So this was my way out. This was my escape hatch. 
And so I did, I went back and I rewrote them so that I didn't mention like any mental illness at all. Like not even a little bit of depression, like no, nothing. Whoa. What is it? What is that like? What did you feel like you learned through that process? Well, first I felt like a liar, <laughs> um, a liar and like a cheater. Um, it was also a, it ended up being a useful exercise in, in externalizing my problems mm. because for so many years I had basically been told by adults and therapists and stuff like that I was choosing to be sick, that my behavior was the problem and that like, you know, even being in foster care, that that was my fault because I wasn't like tough enough to handle being at home because I was so troubled. And when I wrote this application where none of that stuff ever happened, it was really like, okay, look, these bad things happened to me and that's why I've struggled. Mm-hmm. And, and you're a, and, and in this whole process, like you, you're, there are, there are, there are a, a number of amazing schools in, uh, in Canada and the United States, but you're applying to like, you know, some really prestigious, prestigious top, top flight schools. Like, yeah. like Yale and Harvard and the like. Exactly. Yeah. Cause there's only in the U S there's like a really small group of colleges that provide full financial aid. Mm-hmm. And so it, it tends to be that the Ivy league schools and some, like some other smaller colleges, but it's really like fewer than 30. Mm-hmm. Like it's a really small number. Wow. Really? So, so that's the in. So is that ultimately playing an influence into, I mean, I'm sure it must be the, the types of places that you're, that you, that you're, that you're seeing as like the, that the, the, the schools that I can go to by the nature of their scholarship programs, uh, you know, just so happen to be some of the, like the hardest schools to get into. I mean, I don't know, like Harvard, something like Harvard, something like 2% acceptance rate or something like it's crazy. It's like crazy low. Yeah. Luckily it was a little higher when I was in high school. Otherwise I wouldn't have gotten in. But, um, <laughs> like, like three, like 3%. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 1% yeah. increase on like the <laughs> hundreds of thousands of applications yeah. that they get every yeah. year would be a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's, that was really, I mean, and it was a recession. It was 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, that's kids are going to be going through that again today when they're mm-hmm. looking at schools. Um, but yeah, it was really this like driven by desperation. When when you talk about like um, separating the trauma from like your application, like like taking that away from your your how you identify as like your sense of self, is that what you mean? Like you mean that like for the for the first time you realize like, hey, there's all of this bad stuff that like I was originally writing about as things that were part of me that you know have have built towards some sort of level of resilience that would make me a good applicant for the school program, but then realizing like actually, I don't need any of this stuff. This stuff doesn't define who I am. And therefore I can take all of the things that are, you know, actually really great about me and then put them on this application without the bad stuff holding you back. Wow. That is such a positive spin on it. Um, <laughs> that's not the way. So that's not the way you were looking at well, it. <laughs> I mean, okay. I think that when I applied, right, when I was going through it, look, I was really struggling, right? I had an eating disorder. I was misusing Adderall, um, like while I was writing these applications. Right. Mm. And so at the time I really, really felt like a liar and Mm. like I had just cheated my way into college if I was going to get in. Um, and, but it was really like a few years later, you know, or once I was on campus, I realized, okay, there is a different version of the story that is also true in which, in which, you know, I, had a shitty adolescence because these shitty things happened to me and it wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. It's like a really gnarly example of fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the hunger games of fake it till you make it. Yeah. Yeah. Did it was when you, when you finally got accepted to uh, Hogwarts or sorry, uh, uh, Harvard, did you, did you feel, um, did you feel like, like there was a big shift in your life? You know, like g- going from writing applications in your Corolla to, you know, like, you know, literally not having like a place to call home to all of a sudden being in this place that, you know, like when I think back to university, for me, my experience at the university was, was, uh, 
it it was it was so it was so community driven. Like it, it just it, it, it being a part of a university, you are a part of this like gigantic family, and it is. I, I, I look back on my university days really fondly. Community-driven um, is the nicest way I've ever heard anybody say going to a party school. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I went, so hold on, hold on. I, I, went to, I went to a party school for one year, all right? Realized that if I wanted to take my life seriously, I had to change it up and went to a non-party school. There's lots of schools in Nova Scotia uh, that have community-driven <laughs> yeah, environments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yes, regardless, if I'm looking back at the party school days or you know my time at Ryerson in Toronto, both of those, both of those experiences, I look back on now as a thirty-five-year-old man. Like those were some of the most, um, some of the most like special times of my life. I met people that I'll never forget. You know, I was I was a part of like I was a part of something that was exciting and something that was you know driving me to like be the best version of myself. Was that a big part of of your experience in in? in terms of like looking at the, the, the contrast between where you were before you got accepted to where you were a couple of years into your schooling? Yeah. Harvard definitely changed my life and it gave me a lot of stability. And, you know, I had hoped that it would kind of take me out of this really bad situation and just plop me into a totally different world. And it, it definitely did that. I think at the time, I was a little frustrated because it didn't happen right away. It wasn't like I got the admissions letter and then a helicopter came and like, <laughs> you know, threw down the ladder. That's really like, honestly, that's really what I was hoping for. Um, and it took, it definitely, it took time to like adjust to like being at college. Right. Mm. Um, and, and there were moments where I felt just so, so grateful to be there and like, really like I'm looking around me at Harvard Yard and the sun is going through the trees and the leaves are golden and I'm like walking through a dream. And there were other times when I was struggling and I felt like, okay, why am I not grateful? Like I got into Harvard. Now I need to be grateful every minute of every day for the rest of my life. And that was, that was like an unrealistic burden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I can core, I can relate to that experience uh, quite a bit. I went to a private school that was just outside of Boston for the last two years of, of, of high school. I played hockey there and I was on scholarship there and I went there and for the first three months, four months that I was there, I was like, uh, in hindsight, I was very depressed. Like, and, and I was homesick and I didn't really, and, and like exactly like these beautiful campuses, you're like, holy shit, where am I? And, uh, and then at the same time, I'm like, all I want to do is go to, go to sleep mm. and not go to practice and not really go socialize. And I, and you know, why don't I, yeah, why don't I feel like, why don't I feel like I'm in the place I am in, you know? Mm. And, um, so yeah, I, I just, I, I, I just kind of had a, just saw myself in that story you just told and, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah. I I know that after you graduated Harvard, congratulations. Uh, you you went on to work with Google, um, at Google as a software engineer, which is hella neat. Um, and after your your work there, after you left, you wrote a, an essay uh, that I believe was published in the New York Times, titled "After Working at Google, I'll Never Let Myself Love a Job Again," which kind of went viral. Um, can you give us a little bit of uh, insight into what it was like to work at Google and what was that essay all about? What, what, what did you learn from working, uh, at a place like that? I loved working at Google. I actually had a dream last night that I was, um, I was visiting and I was back like in the campus, <laughs> um, and I was going to all the micro kitchens looking for the snacks, um, the <laughs> yeah. free snacks. Um, it really felt like a family to me. Yeah. Like I had spent these years trying to get the approval of institutions and like really trying to find the place that I belonged. And Google really felt like that place for me. Unfortunately, tech has some sexism issues and I got these inappropriate comments from my mentor at work, you know, who would call me like beautiful, gorgeous, my queen like ask me to introduce him to people who he could date, ideally who looked just like me. Um, and this went on for about a year. And eventually I um, spoke up and I made a HR report 
And it really like turned my life inside out. Um, and it showed me that, you know, Google is not a family, like no company is a family, which I think is a disillusionment that a lot of people go through early on in their careers. Um, and it made me just totally rethink, okay, what am I trying to get out of these institutions? Like what need am I looking for them to fill? And how is my relationship to work and achievement going to be different in the future? That's such an inter interesting question to think about. Like, what need does this fill for me? I I have this really um, like personal relationship to that because, like, I do this work with Taylor and Jeremy here, but I also work for a um, tech or data company, and we're on contract with a big um, company right now, and the amount of like stress work can cause at times um, when you feel like you really care about the people and like the idea of what the business is trying to do. But then you feel like you're, you're, it's, it's interesting because when you describe, when you say um, it's not a family, like it kind of is <laughs> like a family in the way that sometimes your family doesn't respect your needs and boundaries. Mm -hmm. And even in trying to, I was in a meeting the other day and I, I started talking about therapy to the people because I was like, hey, listen, I go to therapy and I am feeling this experience that feels a little bit like I do sometimes when I'm in therapy and I re really need you to respect my boundaries right now. And I said that in a meeting to people like just because it was like a defense mechanism almost and they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and it's so funny because I've never thought of like what needs do I have that are being met here? And why do I do like, what, what is this place? Like it's so crazy because big businesses like almost, I don't know if this is true, but like almost need to exist for like society to exist in the way that it is now. But it takes so much out of people. It's so fucking crazy. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like having this like swirl of thought around this and like the idea of, I mean, this is kind of, this now I feel like is my where my thought is going is kind of more off on, on a tangent a little bit, but like even just thinking about even think about like like any company when you want it to like you want it to you I think when people start companies they want it to feel like that like they want it to feel like it's very inviting and it's very warm and like it is a family and I feel like it's a it, it can be like a and, and maybe this is kind of off track of like what you were feeling and obviously that, that you went through a you know shitty experience with somebody that was being way too weird um but like when when you want something to feel familial because you want people to feel very comfortable and at ease and that's somehow that's like that's very um I think that, that that's that's very like natural. But then at the same time, when I think about if we were to have more employees in our business, for example, like there are always boundaries to what that looks like. Because at the end of the day, it isn't a family. And there are bound and because of that, there are boundaries that, that are there are boundaries that need to be respected mm. and and make and and I don't know. I, I kind of think about like how much of a family do you really want your business to be, to feel like. Mm -hmm. But Emmy, like to your point, like what, so when you ask yourself that question about like, what, what needs do I want this to meet? Like what, what came up for you? When I was at Google, I, I had a manager who I really adored. Like I loved him. Like really the word love is the right word. And I kind of thought about him as the parent that I, always wanted to have and that like my goal was I'm going to work really really hard so that we can just always keep working together so that as he gets promoted I can be promoted too and just that like my whole professional and like personal purpose was to like collaborate with this with this guy and uh <laughs> and he did he did everything he could for me like he was really this was not my harasser like he was an ally um, and it was not enough. And it it really highlighted to me the way that I have this like emotional vulnerability from my past and how it could make me really productive. Like I was super productive at Google, 
Mm. But it could also just emotionally devastate me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now I'm like, never want to get into another situation like that again. Like not with an editor, not with like a source. Like I'm like, I can't go there. That's my boundary. Mm. Right. And that was, yeah. And it was not a good boundary probably for him either. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if you guys hired somebody else and then they were like, you're my dad's. I'm not sure you'd love that. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 when I, the, 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 the way that I relate to that is in my experience with, um, is in my experience with, uh, teaching yoga, but, but, but more so in like the learning and the, the learning path of yoga and how you take trainings with somebody and like a particular teacher will resonate with you mm-hmm. and you want to learn more from that person. And, um, and then, and then what that relationship is, is often not the same to both people mm. because, because, you're the, because you are the student who sees the one teacher or the one of a few teachers, but often one, and you are the one of many of the students. And you might have a friendship with that, with that person, but the way that that is a, it, it, it can oftentimes be, a, be like a lopsided, it's a lopsided relationship that that if that is your, if you feel kind of like that is your only kind of like tether to this experience. And if that tether were to break for some reason, whether because they stop teaching or they do something else or whatever, whatever might do that, that like you can no longer kind of like exist in this environment anymore because you don't have that, you don't have the tether that was holding you to it. Like how did, how did after this whole experience with Google, how did that, how did you then like look at work or um, or what it means to like work within an organization um, or to have boundaries in uh, different different boundaries in a in a like a work environment? After Google, I took a job at a company I hated uh, at Facebook now Meta, and I already knew that I hated it going in, but I was like, you know, I loved Google too much. That was not good for me. And so now I'm just going to try it out with a company I abhor. Um, And I stuck it out for 10 months. And in many ways, it was a useful like reset to be like, okay, I can be an engineer, you know, like to do the job that I had wanted to do. Um, And I had a manager who was like younger than me. He was like 25. Um, And I was like 27. And so he would like be in his like his Zoom background was like his childhood bedroom with like a full size bed, like shoved into the corner and like black sheets on it. Um, so it was, it was. Why are black sheets so gross? <laughs> Hold on. Like, are we talking his actual background or he had like a photo of his childhood no, background? That would be it was hilarious. like a, like a green screen that. with like That's a race car, do. like a race car bed frame. Oh my gosh. Sorry, Super professional. Going. Nothing says wonder boy. Like a bed in the background. Um, yeah, but then I I quit. I you know, I left Facebook after I wrote this piece um about work. I got all these messages from people who were like, "I loved a job too, and I was burned by it." And then they kind of took like a rebound job that they hated. Mm. And then all these people were telling me they were like, "Okay, it is possible to love what you do or at least not hate it and mm. have good boundaries." Mm. Um so that really inspired me to rethink like, "Okay, why am I here?" You know, and and I chose software for the money, really. Like, yeah. I, I think some parts of it were, like, are really, really interesting. It taught me a lot. And also, like, when I was in college, I just, I needed a place to stay. I needed health insurance. Um, and my circumstances changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really hard to, it was really hard to come to terms with. And also to, like, give myself the freedom to be like, okay, I can quit. Mm. Did you find an experience now that like that after Facebook meets that meets those needs. Yeah. Well now I'm, now I'm writing full time, which is what I like dreamed about doing as a child and teenager. Um, and it's been like, I, I started doing reporting like more in earnest and it's honestly like so exciting and terrifying that Mm. I can't sleep. Like that's, I'm like in therapy talking about like, I can't sleep at night. I'm like so excited to do stuff the next day. Mm. Um, I hear that. Yeah. You hear that? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. 
I thought you were being sarcastic. No. <laughs> I, I feel g- that way. I lay my head down at night and I just think about all the things I'm going to do tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> that's, what, that's, that's what happens when I put my head down. And then I actually fall asleep about ten, five minutes later. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah I was but for s- five minutes, it's jam-packed. Yeah, And it too. feels like I'm never going to sleep. And then my brain shuts off. Yeah, it takes me 20 seconds. <laughs> uh, Emmy, what would you say is the biggest thing that your struggle with mental health has taken away from you? For me, it's the feeling of everything being all right in the world. I really struggle with not feeling at home in myself or able to like trust other people. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a, like a PTSD complex PTSD thing. Um, or, or, or we could just say the, the sleep, like I have some major issues like waking up in the middle of the night and being awake for hours. Mm. And that kind of, that can kind of make your whole life like spin on a different axis. Yeah. Sleep is crazy. If you don't get sleep, that's a major, major impact. What what would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you? I think I have, seems like such a cliche, but I do think I have more empathy for others than I would have had. Before I really, before I went to therapy and I really was honest about what I was going through, I was like only achievement oriented. And I thought, okay, it doesn't matter what someone struggles with like as long as they achieve enough it's all for the better and now i realize that that's really cruel that's the standard that i was held to sometimes and that's a horrible destructive standard um and so now i value my my suffering and my experience and other people's suffering a lot more mm-hmm. i'm i'm curious what your experience with therapy is like now as an adult versus what it was like as a kid? When I first went back to therapy, I had, I had a really bad experience. I was like 25. I was going through this stuff at Google and I had a therapist who I think was just totally out of her depth. Um, and I went in being like, you know, I want to talk about some trauma stuff and she did not want me to talk about it. Um, you know, she wanted me to wait like five or 10 years. Like that's what she would tell me. Um, and, and it's like, it's shocking in a way, but it's also like, you know, she thought that that was what was going to help me. (laughs) Um, so I really had to dig into the research around PTSD because that was my main complaint. And I ended up becoming a research subject in an exposure therapy study, um, Mm. where you literally just talk through what happened in like extreme detail Again and again, you have to listen to tape recordings like of yourself talking about it. Wow. It was really gnarly <laughs> and like horrible. Um, but it it got me to the place where I was like, okay, now I can like go to a therapist. I can talk about what happened. And for the last four years, I've had like the most excellent therapist ever. I'm like, wow, if only everybody had a therapist like her, we would mm-hmm. not be talking about like times therapy is harmful when you're not ready to go to therapy. Like <laughs> yeah. she's wonderful. Mm. That's it. I, I feel a lot like that because I've been really fortunate to have like right from the get go, a good therapist that I've been with now for the last couple of years. And like I hear about people's experiences and I understand that 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 can very much happen but i've been so lucky i'm like this is so great like i wish everybody had this <laughs> yeah emmy uh this this has been a really really fun yeah. conversation um and i i would love to give you a moment to just kind of plug anything and everything that you've got going on in your life how can people find you how can pe- people find uh the book uh and just how can people in general just stay up to date with the work that you're doing My book is called Acceptance, and it's from Penguin Press. You can buy it wherever you buy books. And my website is emmyneedfeld.com, just my first name, last name. And I have a newsletter, which is honestly way more fun than social media, um, where I suggest like trashy recommendations of like all my guilty pleasures. And uh, also when I'm publishing new, new essays. Amazing. This has been really, really fun. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule to sit and chat with us. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are awesome. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. 
And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.